0: <laughs> sorry oh my god we should super cut that whole <laughs> section that's just cut 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 <laughs> cut, 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 cut 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 okay cut. all right all right oh we'll, we'll cut all that right. part hi i'm maya garance and i'm rebecca cohen and this is the sauce the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love
1: in this episode, we're gonna ruin—oh, god!—your opinion about Israel.
0: We're gonna ruin your opinion about us, no matter what it is, because exactly. no matter what we say, it's gonna be the wrong fucking thing. So you know what, listeners, we've loved you. It's been great. I um, am—I'm I'm so sorry. It has to end this way. Um, But that's how it feels like. It has to just end this way. It's going to end with us talking about Israel and about the current conflict in Gaza and Israel right now. So we decided we wanted to go out with a bang. And uh, here we go.
1: This has to be, is this our third attempt (laughs) at doing an Israel episode? I thought it was
0: our second. Our
1: second. Okay, we only tried second. once before. and No, we might have tried twice. I can't even remember now because we recorded once and then I went to edit what we had recorded and I was like, we can't release this. <laughs> and I, I think we had discussed trying it oh, again. Maybe it was like once, but there was some technical, something where it's like,
0: okay, okay, we're going to do this again. And then we're like, we can't.
1: Yeah, and, w- yeah. Okay, maybe the first time there was a technical issue, and then yeah. the second time, I, I, I was like, we can't lose all our listeners yet. Not, <laughs> no, I'm not done doing this podcast yet. You know, I want. Well,
0: I'm not <laughs> done doing this podcast either. But right now, the geopolitical situation is making it like pretty tough to not fucking talk about. So,
1: so all right, here we are. We're gonna do oh, it. Oh my god. All right. Well, before we do no, before we jump in, let's check in. It's been a minute. Maya, how are you doing? (laughs) Have you been this past week? And, and what are you drinking? I hope it's something strong.
0: I am, you know, still working on my Rowan's Creek in my studio. Um, Hey, guys, I have a show opening, a gallery show opening in LA in Little Tokyo downtown that I will post about. Uh, so I'm prepping for that. And it's wonderful to have all that work to do because as longtime listeners know, uh, I'm an Israeli-American. I hold two passports. Uh, 98% of my family is in Israel. So I've been in deep denial <laughs> and just and just trying to get work done. And uh, and for the most part, trying to avoid the news and social media.
1: I'm, I'm sure listeners will want to know, uh, yeah. are your family okay? Was anyone harmed?
0: Um, my people are so far safe. My generation is a little too old to still be in the reserves. And their mm-hmm. kids are a little too young to yet be in the service. That is not 100%. Entirely accurate, but it is mostly accurate. Okay. um And it's right now. Everybody's just clearing the old bikes out of their shelters,
1: out of their bomb um, shelters,
0: out of their bomb shelters. Yeah, there's a safe room in every apartment, right? As mandated by law,
1: that's used to store bikes up until it's used to store bikes
0: until this the bombing week. start. Yeah, but nobody has been hurt yet.
1: <laughs> well, I mean that's lucky for you guys. You know, I- it could be much worse for you personally. I mean, I mean to say, <laughs> we went um, we
0: went to a vigil, and one of the people at the vigil has a cousin who's in her eighties who was taken hostage. Uh, there were two Americans who went to the you know elementary school that's part of Temple Israel in Hollywood who were killed at the music festival. Um, it's really amazing how even with a very wide diaspora, Mm -hmm. the deaths are very close. Yeah. You don't have to do two degrees of separation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it's a hard week.
1: Well, at least you're drinking. (laughs) I'm drinking
0: with you. That's true. (laughs) That's true. How are you That's doing? Something. What are you drinking?
1: I'm doing all right. I am not as close to this as you are, just in terms of you're having all the family there and everything. Uh, but emotionally, it's been uh, difficult. It's been kind of a weird journey of like, I am uh, not able to sleep thinking about the horrors that have happened and are happening to people so then I don't want to think about it. I'm like, let me just get my mind off it. And then I feel guilty for getting my mind off it. And I'm like, I, I, you know, but, but those people are suffering and like, oh my God, what they're going through. And somehow it's an obligation upon me to try to feel that for them. And then I have to be like, no, it's okay. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, It's it's awkward and
0: weird. And even in the times where Once the Israel military goes fucking crazy, Mm -hmm. I feel like I don't even have time to grieve uh, the Jewish lives because I'm like, oh, God, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, I think what we should make clear right up front is that I am an Israeli-American with dual citizenship. I do not support the apartheid state. I also believe that Israel should exist. Uh, we are not pro the death of innocence here. right? And I want to be really clear about that. And I'm sure that when Rebecca talks about the horrors that keep her up at night, it is not only the Jewish lives that are experiencing horror that are keeping her up at night. So I want to just before we get into any of this. We can have conversations later, like listeners, we're going to welcome your thoughts. We can have these conversations about whether we can believe the things that we're believing. But I want to be very clear right now, this kind of reactive, uh, dehumanizing treatment of Israelis, of Palestinians by each and of their sides, mm-hmm. that's not... What's going on in this podcast? So, if that's what you're looking for, guys, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> just turn it off. Right Switch now. it up we're now. We're not here for you on that one. Yeah, and, and at the same time, I think we're going to try to take a nuanced, yeah, and honest look at things. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think anyone who's looking to have their side of things reinforced is going to find satisfaction here. But that's what we do. We we complicate things, and um, I'm personally interested in in kind of like the the conversation. I'm interested in the culture because that's what we're talking about: culture and politics. So, while we're not super experts on geopolitics, we are not. Um, <laughs> we we no we we can't speak with authority about that stuff. But what I do want to look at is. The way people, particularly Americans, because that's what I'm exposed to, talk about this and what we see in the conversation around these topics. Uh, And so in the interest of getting started on that, I'm drinking a rum (laughs) old-fashioned. Wait, no, a maple rum old-fashioned. Because uh, this past weekend, uh, my husband Matt and I visited his mom in Connecticut. We drove up to Vermont to see the leaves because it's october and um the leaves i'm sorry were a little disappointing
0: climate change
1: i thought we picked the right week i thought it would be peak foliage as they say it was not but we did get maple syrup and i got this um rum barrel aged maple syrup oh yeah so i'm using that in place of simple to sweeten my old fashioned with rum fantastic Yeah, and uh, I put a little Peychaud's Bitters to give it a little autumnal, a little bit of that autumnal flavor. I I think it's pretty good.
0: Fantastic. All right, patrons, we love you. This isn't our last episode. Uh, It just feels (laughs) like it is, and maybe that's what this is about. We are talking about the limits of what (laughs) our conversation seems to be able to do, and also... um, the, li- the limits of, I don't know, neoliberalism, liberal humanity, it's, I don't know, let's get into it, let's get into it.
1: <laughs> At the time of this recording... It's been a week. It's been a little over a week since the Hamas attack on Israel. At this point, we think about 1,400 Israelis and foreign nationals in Israel have been killed, um, and uh, 100 or so, 150 or more, I'm not sure the number, taken hostage. Um, and at this point, Israel is preparing for what appears to be an imminent ground invasion of Gaza. <sighs> they have been bombing Gaza. They have been telling the people of Gaza to evacuate towards the south. In and, ways
0: that are often kind of impossible, yes,
1: yeah, we, for we people to actually do.
0: What we'll talk about later, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I mean, I don't even know if we'll get into it in that specific aspect of it, but just to give you um, that context, because we don't know what will happen in the next few days or week, um, but we do know that probably at least a few thousand Palestinians have been killed in Gaza by these Israeli airstrikes. So, so. Rebecca had an idea for how
0: to approach this because as we've described, we have tried on multiple occasions to do an episode about Israel. And every time we're like, we yeah, we can't release this. We We can't. So uh what was what was your thought for how we're gonna actually make a releasable episode? What was your theory for how we're gonna do this?
1: So this was inspired by going on social media and seeing the way people talk about this, and granted, this is social media, so everything's like inflamed into the nth degree of yeah. like ridiculous passions and no one's uh listening to anyone and all of that. But I think that that's also um just true of any yeah. conversation about Israel, any debate about Israel. It's always Absolutely. like that on Absolutely. social media or anywhere. anywhere. And that's always upset me and driven me nuts. And one of the things that I've been grappling with in the wake of the Hamas attacks or in the midst of this crisis and violence is, what is it about the way people talk about Israel that is driving me nuts so much? What what are the things that I'm hearing? So I was like, I want to pinpoint three things just to keep it contained, because I could easily have a lot, much longer list than three, but let's try to pinpoint three things that people tend to say or that we have heard and seen repeatedly that are wrong and talk about why they're wrong and why if you are hearing someone say this, they are wrong. And if you are saying this, you're wrong. (laughs) So please stop and reconsider what you're saying. And hopefully in trying to explain why these specific
0: things are wrong, we can get to the much more difficult, nuanced, Parts of this so that we can just really. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the first, uh, the first one that I want to address comes from the American left and maybe other countries (sighs) too. Here's where I'm focused. Um, And the sentiment is the only one to blame for what happened is Israel. Israel is completely at fault. For all of it. All of it. For all of it. The most prominent examples of late being there was this joint statement that was released by a coalition of Harvard student groups, like 30 or so, I think a few more than 30 Harvard student groups that called themselves the Harvard-Palestine Solidarity Groups, and it included the statement, we, the undersigned student organizations, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. Keep in mind, this was released, like, the day of or the day after the the actual attacks by Hamas.
0: I really think that Hamas would be like, I'm sorry, could you not appreciate the work we did here? <laughs> that's like, right? that's right? pretty, just like, really like, dissing some real credit. organization, like, mm-hmm. some real fucking maneuvers that they did. Yeah. I think they'd be, like, quite offended, frankly.
1: You might actually be right. Yeah. <laughs> uh another example the president of the NYU student bar association said israel quote bears full responsibility for this tremendous loss of life this tremendous loss of life not referring to the bombings in gaza because that hadn't even happened yet <sighs> yeah so these these is very problematic these statements have received a lot of blowback, I want to point out. Um, this president of the NYU Student Bar Association had been offered a job and accepted a job at a law firm that then rescinded the offer oh, after yeah, oh, after shit. they made the statement. Oh. Uh, and I think maybe in the next segment, I want mm. to get into some of the blowback for these um, Harvard groups, though I will say that a number of groups have like walked it back, said but they didn't also, realize what the statement was. I think that there is meant. this.
0: Um, I've seen in a lot of uh, the BLM organizations in LA this real belief that whatever was happening, which was still unfolding, that we didn't really know yet, was like
1: revolution. Well, that's that's where it's an issue, right? And and you mentioned,
0: and I want to bring this up: a subgenre of the only one to blame ever is Israel is. You can never condemn Hamas atrocities without also condemning Israel's atrocities, which what what it feels like culturally to me is when, like, you could never say you were voting for Hillary Clinton without acknowledging her faults. Right, like, you could never just right. be like, yeah, I'm voting for Hillary, yeah! You'd just be like, I know, I know. Yeah, but I, know, I know she's done this, the, has this, these this problems, is this, and this she and this, is this. But, but this part's but, good. Or, right. or
1: the options are, uh, you know. Right, right. You always have to qualify. Yeah, always, always. I mean, it it is kind of like that. It's a mm. kind of whataboutism, that yes. one. and And I've seen it a lot on social media. I see that all the time. If anyone... It posts something that's like, look at this Israeli family that had their throats all slit or something, some horrible thing happened to them. There will always be at least one reply that's like, well, what about this? You don't talk about these Palestinians who were killed. What about Israel did this, blah, blah, blah. I understand kind of the impetus. I, I do. Because I think that people feel like These atrocities that were committed against Israelis will be and now are being used as rationalization and justification for all kinds of atrocities against the people of Gaza. And so if you publicly express (laughs) upset about the atrocities committed by Hamas against Israelis, that somehow you are automatically participating In the Israeli government's use of those tragedies to justify its bad acts.
0: Which, by the way, in terms of the reactive trigger Mm
1: -hmm. that it
0: then flips, is this way that um, people then feel like they can't acknowledge Palestinian pain because then it becomes justification for violence against Israelis it like so right, so people right. go into their defensive crouches like bam yeah. bam um this is and, very true and if there's anything that ever happens to an Israeli well yeah fucking colonizer like <laughs> right. fucking colonize colonizer well that um, is like
1: the worst of it that you see from uh far left activists and pro-Palestinian activists you do you do even see people sometimes saying or implying that if Israelis didn't want to be brutally murdered, they shouldn't be Israelis, basically. They shouldn't live on this land that was stolen. They shouldn't be part of this regime, whatever, which is ridiculous. So,
0: uh, I, and I have to tell you what was extremely painful for me, and this is something that I think is our main point of The Only One to Blame is Israel fallacy, Yes, is to see people on the American left treat Hamas terrorism like an organic uprising of revolution, like it's Arab fucking spring. My friends, no. that is a, That, I think, of everything has been the worst. Hamas is not the Palestinian people. Hamas is a terrorist organization the way that they have committed atrocities is not in the best interests of their own people. Like, let us be so clear about that. That to me is the biggest thing about, like, just blame Israel. Hamas is not interested in your female, queer, neurodivergent, or even Palestinian liberation. It is not and i feel like we have to really start there okay. and we can, you know like know yeah, and ugh. i also
1: want to be clear like the word terrorist is very fraught we did a whole episode about it yes and the way that that word obviously changes meaning depending on who's committing the violence or who the violence is against and you know who's using the word and freedom fighters have often been called terrorists so it's kind of gets easy to Start saying, are they terrorists or are they freedom And a lot of the
0: snarkiest American left stuff is like that. Like, you would have called this person a terrorist, you white person, 100 years ago. And it's like,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. But but we should be clear about what Hamas is and, like, where they came from and uh, all of that. If we look at the history of Gaza and of Palestine, um, just going back, like, in the last 15, 20 years, Israel withdrew from Gaza in, what, like, 2006? Mm Mm-hmm. And then um, they had an election and elected Hamas, in a sense. <laughs> they did elect Hamas, but we should keep a few things in mind when talking about that. Number one, only about 44% of Gazans voted for Hamas. And at the time, Hamas, which, though its charter was like said, it wanted to destroy Israel and kill all Jews everywhere. Um, Hamas, at the time, was kind of moderating its rhetoric. its official policy as a as official platform as a party running candidates for office, it was not the destruction of Israel. That was not part of their official platform. And they were competing against Fatah, which was the more moderate wing of Palestine of Palestinian politics. And Fatah had already, recognized israel's existence and that's like yasser arafat's party god Um, i just want to say
0: to spend my week feeling nostalgia for yasser arafat
1: Arafat is
0: fucking crazy it's like people during the trump era being nostalgic for w it's crazy anyway
1: it's wild but, but I think the, in, the differences between the PLO under Yasser Arafat and what we're seeing now from Hamas are interesting and enlightening. Uh, but what happened after Hamas won that election with 44% of the vote is that they basically staged a coup and they drove Fatah out of Gaza. They took over. And there has not been an election since. in Gaza since then. So it's hard to know what the people of Gaza want politically, though there have been some opinion polls which find that a majority, not a huge majority, but like 53 or 54 percent of Gazans polled, um, have no problem with recognizing Israel's existence and having a two-state solution. There's also, I think, I cannot remember the exact numbers, but a pretty overwhelming, like a very large majority of people polled said that they do not feel comfortable criticizing Hamas. Yes, in Gaza, uh, because Hamas is <laughs> a terrorist organization that rules like a gang. There, there is not really freedom of speech or freedom of thought, and there's no democracy there anymore because of them. Uh, so it would be a mistake to suggest that Hamas represents the people of Gaza or the Palestinian people for that reason alone. Beyond that, I think it's self-evident, if you take a moment to examine it, that Hamas's tactics of late are not those of an organization that is trying to help the people of Gaza. They uh, have been consistently engaging in provocations that they know will not seriously harm Israel, but will bring down Israeli wrath upon Gaza. And this takes it just to a whole other level, this recent attack. Um there's not a any strategic uh aim here that you can pinpoint. They're not like taking hostages and then making demands like here's what we want. It really seems like deliberately designed to cause Israel to Bring the fury of hell down on Gaza, which yes. would bespeak a a lack of concern for the welfare of the folks of Gaza. And it is also well understood that Hamas does things like position their headquarters in or near a hospitals, mosques, yes. schools. Yes. And so so, so when
0: and so when when Israel attacks a refugee camp, it's because Hamas goes and sets up their organization in the refugee camp. Right. And again, this is not like this is not to is, justify Israel's no, actions. No. This is not to justify Israel's actions, but the game there is a game being played here. Right. Right. And the and the the end point of this game is not prosperous liberal safe, secure safe secure like,
1: independent independent like, yeah.
0: voting democracy that the American left would imagine wanting to support. It very much looks like a hope for a a, a Taliban-like autocracy. And that's what's going on here. And it's it's very well organized and funded by Iran, possibly with help from
1: Russia. I mean, we'll get into that. But I'm just saying... No, but I think that's worth mentioning because I think that when you look at Hamas' recent attack on Israel... That is yet more of a piece of of why it's not an organic, and genuine uprising. It's not the people rising up and it's not intifada. Enough. It's it, not it's not, it, it's not intifada. Um, it is funded and supported and possibly organized by other global powers. So, like, there's some people with their hands in the pot here who are definitely not. Palestinians and don't have any interest in the Palestinians and preserving their lives, much less providing their freedom. Like, that's that's just really not what this is at all. And um, we have to be straightforward and honest about that. Because you and I, Maya, are absolutely in favor of the Palestinian people living in peace and freedom and security. Like, We want that. Uh, We want to see them have their own
0: state. While also at the same time, the conditions that Gazans have been living under, right now, uh, Gaza has been often described as an open-air prison. Yeah. Hamas is like the gang of prison guards running it. Uh, and, and, And then Israel is the walls. Israel controls access of food, electricity, Water to Gaza in this in this need to, as we're seeing, shut shit down if they feel like they need to. Mm-hmm. This is a horrible fucking situation. This is not like I'm not justifying that at <laughs> not, all.
1: Not at all. No. I, I, and I think, mm. I, I mean, mm. honestly, like I think the massive failure represented by the Hamas attacks oh my God. demonstrate that these years of blockading Gaza have not helped. They have not. No. I'm not saying that they caused the attack, but I am definitely saying that all of the bluster about security as a justification for depriving the people of Gaza, and it's not just that they're blockaded, like they're not allowed to fish in their own waters of the Mediterranean. Um, Yeah. Gazan people, they can't import basic raw materials to, like, build their own infrastructure because the Israelis claim that those materials uh, could be used to, you know, build weapons or something. Yeah. Um, They can't go into Israel to work. They can't export their own uh, agricultural products. Some of them they can, but some of them they can't for no real reason. They can't travel. Like, a, a professor in Gaza can't, like, go to a conference somewhere ever they can't have a conference there because people can't visit Gaza. They can't visit their own relatives in the West Bank. Like it's insane. It's
0: insane. It's insanely bad. It's insanely bad. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Like and I feel like the things that Israel is doing in the name of what they think is their own security in the face of an increasingly powerful fundamentalist group that has no interest in negotiation Mm -hmm. uh, leads to these extreme polar positions that make the idea of potential peace harder and harder and harder to imagine. So I don't think that we can be like the very existence of Israel is the cause of all of this all right now. oh, Like, We are in a place where extremity is pulling us away from any possibility of true engagement.
1: Yeah. And as we go on, I think in a later segment, we're going to get into that a little bit more Uh, because I don't believe personally that these um, entrenched positions are necessarily inevitable. And I do definitely don't think that the existence of Israel is what has caused these issues. Uh, I don't think that Hamas itself is an inevitability just based on the existence of Israel. I also don't necessarily think it's an inevitability just based off of the treatment of the people of Gaza and the whole blockade and the humanitarian uh, disaster disaster Disaster. that that represents, the the humanitarian horror of that. Uh, I do think that It would be totally rational to expect resistance. It would be rational to expect even what we might call terrorism um, because it is an asymmetrical situation where Israel has this incredibly powerful military. They have all this power. The Gazans have nothing. So sure, I would not be surprised if they resorted to whatever tactics they could, but that's not what this is what we're seeing, and this is, I'm going to quote this great article from The Atlantic by Yair Rosenberg called uh, What Hamas Wants is the title. And one of the things that he points out is that Hamas, first of all, wants Israel to flatten Gaza. Because I think the way he put it, I'm paraphrasing now, but he wrote something like, the situation of the blockade where Israel is guarding the borders, but the sort of like the inmates are in charge of the prison. And so the worst gang of the most violent inmates are the ones who have taken charge. That situation is no longer useful to Hamas. It has been up till now, and they've gotten to a certain point. And so now they are trying to change the game. Yep. And part of that is getting Israel to invade probably and occupy Gaza again. And uh, Yair Rosenberg is suggesting that it's part of a political agenda within Palestine. I'll quote here. Hamas is attempting to seal the fate of Fatah and maneuver to eventually take over the PLO and its international diplomatic presence. This is part of a ploy to destroy. They already drove Fatah out of Gaza. Now they're trying to uh, flex their muscle, as it were, and drive Fatah out of the West Bank and Palestine completely, basically destroy their rivals and become the representatives of the Palestinians. <sighs> All right, round two. All right, next next one, next one. So we've criticized sort of the leftists and those who are sympathetic to the Palestinian flight and I think in a misguided way (laughs) are interpreting violence against Israeli civilians as somehow justified. As as revolution. Yeah, as revolution.
0: As as righteous revolution. And as we said in the last segment, given the Gaza blockade, we could expect that kind of revolutionary behavior, but that's not what this is. Okay, so we've made that
1: clear. All right. Um... On the other side of things, you get this sentiment, um, basically, they were killed for being Jewish. Oh, man.
0: Yeah. Okay. Look, in I'm fact, sorry. I,
1: what? <laughs> just because we've talked about this. We've talked about this in our anti-Semitism episode. Like, Yeah. We did talk about this in um, our anti-Semitism episode. And we talked about it, yeah, the episode about Twitter and anti-Semitism and the ADL and the way that some folks are very quick- to accuse others of anti-Semitism, and to interpret anything that is critical of Israel as being anti-Semitic. And we've seen that a lot with um, things like uh, the backlash against Rashida Tlaib, the congresswoman, who is Palestinian-American. And she put up a Palestinian flag in front of her office. And people got very upset about that. And said it was anti-Semitic. And um, I saw a video on social media. I don't know what university campus it was, but they were having a pro-Palestinian protest. And there's a Jewish girl crying, distraught in the video, talking to, I guess, a security guard at the campus saying, they want us dead, don't you understand? Taking it as a personal threat that people were expressing solidarity with the Palestinians. This is not uncommon among American Jews. American For American Jews,
0: Israel becomes a symbol that holds something that, again, is not always true. So in this respect, this kind of sense that this is like a pogrom, mm-hmm. um, the highly organized... Hamas attack was extremely violent. It was extremely grim. It was purposefully very bloodthirsty um, in terms of how the deaths happened. Mm -hmm. Pogroms happened when Jews who were without power were attempting to assert power. That is not the power dynamic going on right now. This is not a pogrom. Like, no. Yeah,
1: you see some folks pointing out, a lot of folks pointing out that this was the most Jews killed in a single day since the Holocaust. And (sighs) while that may be true and it's upsetting if you're Jewish, it's always upsetting when people like you (laughs) are killed, you know, en masse. It's upsetting. But it's not the same. <laughs> There's such important differences. And I think it's it's so crucial to be careful about that and to acknowledge that. Um like Hamas wants to kill Jews as part of their charters like that Jews are which I evil. didn't realize
0: is very like that they're sharing the same protocol of the Elders of Zion stuff that like Yeah, like all Jews of the are behind crazy, every bad
1: thing in history. The Jews
0: were behind the French Revolution. I mean, like some <laughs> really old school Henry Ford international Jew kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. And, they and, they should get
0: along really well with fucking Elon Musk, man.
1: Right. They have so much in common. They actually do have a lot actually, in common. They do when you think about it. Um, but yes, they, they do have that stuff in their charter. They do explicitly say they want to wipe Israel off of a map and that they want to kill Jews. Um, and in a vacuum, <laughs> that's anti-Semitism. Yes. Like, in and of itself, it's like, yes, that is hatred of people because they're Jewish, but like power relationships, hegemony, <laughs> they matter. They really do matter. And yes, when you're talking about, pretty much every atrocity against the Jews that's been committed over history. You're talking about a people in diaspora. You're talking about people who are a small minority in the countries that they live in and are easily turned into scapegoats by the powerful. Yes. That's not what this is. No. Uh, Which is, again, not to say that Hamas are the powerless here, but it is asymmetrical If you're looking just at Israel and even Hamas, it's asymmetrical. Well, also,
0: I mean, part of me wanted, when when we were trying to figure out how to frame this, I wanted to frame this as like all the stuff we have in common. Like, Uh, (laughs) you know, like, why can't they get along? They should have this in common. Authoritarian governments, you know, that are like consolidating power with their religious fundamentalist extremists. We oh all God, know we that all story. That we do all have that in common.
1: Like that is what's going on. So that is so it's what's going on? It's so
0: so so we all and I'm I'm including obviously America in this, right? Yes, yes, like like <laughs> very so much. So we all have this in common, and what it seems like all of these people have in common, all of these religious extremists, is that. They are total grifters on whatever government they have, which is like a liberal left government flow of income that they have pouring into them. So Hamas takes all that fucking aid money and just like pours it into there, just like American religious fundamentalists do, just like Mm -hmm. Israeli religious fundamentalists do. And do any of these group like women in power and being successful Absolutely not. Mm Or any of, is Hamas looking at Rashida Tlaib and being like, oh, yes. Like, of course not. (laughs) Of course not. So, like, they all have so much in common. And what they also have in common is they all want (laughs) to win. They
1: They have will to power. And as long as other
0: people win, they can't. So, you know.
1: No, they all have will to power in common. And I think that that's a really important context that we kind of alluded to In the previous segment, um, which is this geopolitical context, it's clear that Hamas has outside help. (laughs) Given Given the blockade alone and the fact that raw materials, much less weapons, are not supposed to be getting in there, someone's helping them out. And also, the level of planning. Oh. The long-term careful planning required for them to have pulled this off. So this is something that
0: I just wanted to share. My uh, cousin, who was a journalist in Israel, he's now doing other things, but he wrote something that a lot of people have been reading and I wanted to share it because obviously I don't agree with everything that he says, but a lot of his insight is useful. Mm -hmm. He said uh, the military plan of Hamas on how to break into Israel was very impressive full stop. Superbly planned, detailed intelligence, clearly worked on very patiently for years, executed at an unimaginably precise level militarily. Every aspect can educate us about the capabilities of planning, execution, compartmentalization, control, and full awareness of the intelligence and operational capacities of the IDF. He's saying that the operation was based on dozens or hundreds of sub-operations and preparation, each of them sophisticated and complicated in its own right each of which could have exposed the whole plan and yet the main plan remained secret and he said that it was the first ever coordinated uh, effort by hamas of something like this and of also certain weapon systems like this was like the, this was their dress rehearsal and they did it like a fucking full opening night and they may have participated in combat overseas or gone through intensive training overseas. So Hamas could not have done this without what he says, rationality, practical thinking, and a huge financial investment made in the service of a defined goal.
1: So what everyone seems to take for granted is that Iran is one of the global players, if not the major one, probably the major one that is involved in this and ha- is behind this. Though I haven't seen politicians or anyone in official capacity really like coming out and saying that or providing any evidence of that, because right. I think if if it were to right. be presented with evidence, it would, the implications would would be dire yeah (laughs) so it's sort of like let's not talk about that right now but you definitely have the U.S. uh, providing two aircraft carriers to the region which we have never done before yeah never done before and that's Not for Hamas, okay? No. That's not for Gaza. Like, that's because they're worried about Lebanon. They're worried about Hezbollah, who we do know have close ties with Iran. It's basically an Iranian army in Lebanon. How about Russia? How about Russia? Well, how about Russia? How about it? Like, I know I'm a conspiracy theorist when it comes to Russia, and I keep hitting that note, but I'm like, you know what? Days before this attack happened, I was reading an article about Putin bragging about his close relationship with Iran right now that that being countries that are under sanction by the west and by the US has sort of brought Iran and Russia together and Russia and I'm sorry China may also be part of that access may, may, maybe obliquely maybe in a very peripheral way but like it definitely seems like Russia if they're not directly involved, are definitely in communication with Iran, who are involved and are definitely uh, benefiting in a number of ways.
0: Yes. And I'd like to just yeah. back to my my cousin's thing that he wrote where he said, you know, the calculation of Iran, Hezbollah and Russia against Israel, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, there is a chance that Israel is going to be the cannon fodder, a cannon fodder of a big new war. And he said, Russia, which warned against the entry of a third party, the USA, into the fighting and did not express any sympathy with Israel, no conversation from Putin. On the contrary, they are warning there against a military solution. The Russians are warning against a military solution. That's where we're going. Yeah. So this isn't about like, oh, people think Jews have horns. Like,
1: no. The, the sort of like anti-Semitism. Yeah, the, the anti-Semitism is probably a useful tool for recruiting young men in Gaza or from other countries. I don't even know if all the Hamas fighters are even from there. I, don't, I honestly don't know. But yeah, I mean, Israel's treatment of the Gazans is the best recruiting tool. But then you offer them this ideology of extreme uh, Islamism or whatever you want to call it. And you can see where uh, that would be appealing.
0: But what they are resisting and what has always been underneath this is this fight against the West and against a certain kind of progress that we take for granted as just a way of life. In a lot of these fundamentalist cultures, ideas of progress are not on the table. And I think that one of the main threads running through Islamicist fundamentalism, anti-Israel-ness, is the, the fight against the West. Yeah. And that is part of this. And right now, over the years, Israel has increasingly been connecting with other partners in the Middle East, like... Egypt and Jordan and now Saudi Arabia because at the end of the day a lot of these arab countries are like we are interested in progress in money yeah. in technology <laughs> in participating in a western economy yeah and Israel is a natural partner in a way that extreme fundamentalism is not is
1: not extreme fundamentalism can be you know, for a regime, and I'm not speaking of like a terrorist group or non-state actor, but for a state, a regime, fundamentalism can be a useful tool. Um and and Israel, hatred of Israel and Israel's bad treatment of the Palestinians can be a very useful oh, tool. Hundred. And has been for many regimes. Absolutely. But I think it is fascinating to see the ways in which over time more and more of the governments of the region have started to realize that their interests are not best served that way. And, and that actually is a really important piece here, because one of Hamas's stated justifications, stated purposes for their attack was to stop the imminent uh, detente between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Saudi Arabia and Israel were in talks to start talks, basically. And they have been for a long time. There's been all kinds of like a little
0: intelligence sharing, little secret meetings. Like this has been happening. Yeah. It's been on the table but for a while.
1: We were on the cusp. We are. We were on the cusp of Saudi Arabia officially recognizing Israel, which is pretty huge. And... That is one thing that supposedly Hamas wants to stop. And uh, I think I'm going to go back to Yair Rosenberg and uh, his piece about what Hamas wants, because he writes about Iran's interest in preventing Saudi recognition of Israel. He writes, I'm just going to quote it, for Iran, the agreement would be a major strategic setback. Should Israel, the most potent U.S. military partner in the region, and Saudi Arabia, Washington's most financially powerful and religiously influential one, normalize and build cooperation, Tehran would face an integrated pro-American camp. American partners, including the UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, and Jordan, would effectively ring the Arabian Peninsula— Saudi-Israeli normalization would largely block Iran's regional aspirations in the short run and Chinese ambitions in the more distant future. That's right. There are these geopolitical interests that have a vested interest in stopping this normalization of relations. This is not ideological. It's not anti-Semitic per se. It's what is expedient for them. It is what they think will be useful for their national interests and, and their global power rivalries. And
0: in terms of Israel's real fuck-up is that the shittier the Israelis have treated the Palestinians over the years— Yes, the less the Palestinians focus on how shitty all of their so-called Arab brethren treat them as well. And in terms of getting the shit end of the stick, yes, the Palestinians have gotten the shit end of the stick again and again and again.
1: And And they get it from all sides. All sides. Which which is not to say that Israel isn't like the ones to blame here, but also it's worth pointing out that the blockade of Gaza doesn't work unless Egypt is controlling their border with Gaza. And they do. And
0: they do. So, so it just leads to an endlessly disastrous, shitty situation that people don't want to fix. And I think that that's what it comes down to is that, like, when I, one of the things I wish that, that I wish we could think about more or start the conversation here is who benefits right from this who wins because actually the israelis are not winning from this like israel being in war right now and i'm not saying they're not winning because of the mass attack on them Mm -hmm. i'm saying all of a sudden them being in a war israel is not winning from this it's not benefiting israel it's not benefiting actual palestinians who's winning from this and I feel like that's the first question to be asking right now.
1: Where we ended there with your question of who's benefiting, who's winning, is a great transition into our next segment. And the the last sort of um, misconception, let's say, yes. that... We're hearing voiced, uh, yes. the last um, just wrong thing yeah. people say. And if you say it, you're wrong. And if you say it, you're wrong. <laughs> so don't say it. Yeah. That sentiment is along the lines of, well, this is a super complicated, ancient feud, which, which can never be resolved. It goes back for thousands of years. These people can never live in peace together. You always hear that. There's always someone saying that when you talk about Israel. and um, It
0: generally goes with, and so it's all Israel's fault. It's all just Israel's fault for existing. Right, That's right, a very, right. They're linked. Like,
1: they're linked. Kind of, kind of. But it's a kind of like a throwing your hands in the air and being like, these people, whether it's the Jews or the Palestinians or the, uh, yeah, the Israelis yeah. or the Arabs, they're just, they're always going to fight and hate each other. Which is, I mean, it's so irritating because it does ignore all of the realities on the ground. It ignores what is actually behind these conflicts. Um, It also
0: ignores, like, hundreds, thousands of years where there were, like, really live... Communities of Jews in all of these in Morocco, in Iran, in you know, like in
1: in Palestine. In Palestine, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, obviously, Jews have but lived like, in Palestine the whole time. For the whole time, the whole time, the whole time. The whole time. The whole time. they've been there, and um, it wasn't really a problem. I'm not saying everything was always roses, but like this isn't like, oh, these people are just always going to kill each other. They always have. That's really not actually not the, the historical reality. And um, it it definitely ignores the stuff we were talking about in terms of geopolitics and the global actors and agents who are making things happen. It also ignores the internal reality on the ground in Israel and in Palestine. There are power relationships and parties that have something to gain from not peace. Yeah. There are people, it's not just like some kind of ethnic or religious conflict. Uh, religion plays a role. Yes. It, it definitely plays an important role. But the idea that, um, that the main problem is religion, I think, it is really missing the picture. And
0: with every round of violence, it becomes more intractable, which does benefit someone. It's just generally not actual people trying to live their fucking lives feed their children better themselves, go to school. Exactly. You know, like there's one of the worst hostages from the Israeli side uh, was this woman who's just been a peace activist living on the border of Gaza, driving Gazans to get cancer treatment. You know, like Mm -hmm, there are people mm -hmm. who are sitting there doing that work, building bridges, often it's women. Like Mm -hmm. there, there are people who just want to live their lives. Yeah. With every round, with every round of violence, the idea of going back to that feels increasingly impossible and there are people who absolutely want to exploit that.
1: Yeah. I remember having a conversation with my dad a few years ago where um I don't know, we were talking about Israel and um I was criticizing the blockade of Gaza. And he was saying something along the lines of, you know, those, those people want to destroy Israel. And I was like, Dad, most Palestinians don't want to destroy Israel. Palestinians are just like everyone else in the world. Everyone in the world, everyone in the world wants the same thing. They want to live their fucking lives. They want electricity that works. They want a roof over their head. They want no bombs falling on them. They want to send their kids to school and give their kids a better life than they had. You know, like, everybody wants the same thing. People who want other than that are the rare exceptions. They're the noisiest and the most violent, but they don't represent the people. Anyway, let's talk about who those are who do stand to benefit from this. Well, so...
0: One of the things I would like to share just about um, the history of Israel, just really briefly, because I think it's important here and maybe can help us understand where we've been at a little bit. Israel was founded by a bunch of irreligious socialist Zionists yes. who, in a rush to get their laws passed, probably gave a little too much power to religious people who didn't want Israel to exist because Israel... Israel's not supposed to exist until the Messiah comes. So, like, the super religious Jews were, like, not into Israel. Israel was a socialist, you, not utopia. It was, you know, fucked up and corrupt. And it, a socialist
1: project. You it was call. a
0: socialist project. And because of that, actually, the American left in the 50s and 60s, Israel was very much this kind of utopic ideal. And Pete Seeger and the Weavers would sing, like, kibbutznik songs at their concerts. And, like, mm. it was this kind of leftist idea of what could happen. And what I want to share is that starting in the 80s, very much in response to the wars of 67 and the Yom Kippur War of 73, you had a rise, a previously unimaginable rise of a right wing. Mm -hmm. Just like U.S., Great Society of the 60s and 70s, a lot of fear of what civil rights is doing, leads to Reagan. And the rise of the right wing happening at the same time, guys. Yeah. And that right wing has become increasingly extreme since the 80s. Sound familiar? And in the past 20 years, Israel has been led by Benjamin Netanyahu, by Bibi Netanyahu, who is an autocratic, corrupt, strongman. I am going to quote this Yuval Harari article from a few days ago in the Washington Post. The real explanation for Israel's dysfunction is populism rather than any alleged immorality. For many years, Israel has been governed by a populist strongman, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is a public relations genius, but an incompetent prime minister. Uh, Israel is is a parliamentary state, which means that when A coalition cannot be formed to run a government. They have to dissolve the government and hold a new election. They have had five elections since 2019. And every time Netanyahu recreates a government aligning with the even more extreme right-wing factions, because as he continues to lose support and hemorrhage support, the only way that he can Create a consolidated power is with the worst, and most incompetent, and most extreme political right guys. Does any of this sound familiar? Like what? It's, <laughs> and yeah. uh, I want to again read this Harari thing. The coalition Netanyahu established in December twenty two, so just this past year, has been by far the worst. It is an alliance of messianic zealots and shameless opportunists who ignored Israel's many. Problems, including a deteriorating security situation and focused instead on grabbing unlimited power for themselves, extremely divisive policies, outrageous conspiracy theories about the deep state. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. this is what's been going on. This is what's happening and what has been happening in Israel. And Netanyahu has been on trial and is trying to avoid jail for corruption by trying to stay in power. Again, people, can you and changing the
1: judiciary system to try to protect just back, personally back, back himself back for just a second yeah. so so he he has been indicted yes on corruption charges yes which he has avoided uh having to deal with by, by trying wh- to by... stay
0: in power as the prime minister and as more and more people won't work with him anymore he stays with this incompetent sycophants who are willing to do things like change the judiciary so he he personally can avoid jail,
1: but uh, but also changing the judiciary benefits the extremists in his coalition, his power yes. coalition, because they are a minority. They they don't represent the uh, majority of voters, and so they are able to push through their agenda, or they could theoretically push through their agenda effectively if the judiciary were reformed in their favor. If they basically could get the judiciary out of the way, there'd be no check on their power. Yeah. Is the point. Yeah. And this has sent Israelis literally into the streets like the protests have been so massive. It's beyond what what you could picture.
0: And it's beyond what we have ever done as Americans at the right. most extreme parts, they are in the streets. My my parents were in Israel. People just keep the flags in their cars. So at any moment, if they have a spare half hour, they just go march. <laughs> like, like people are sort of take shifts. Okay, we put the kids to bed. Now we're going to go for our evening afternoon shift of marching. People in Israel have been marching against Netanyahu and his corruption and his attempt to change the government to protect himself and the worst of his followers every day by the tens of thousands for months now. Every day. Yeah. Can you imagine keeping it up? We thought we were really fancy by having the Women's March that one weekend. Imagine if we were having the <laughs> yeah. Women's March every single day for a year. And now you understand what Israel has been dealing with that also left us similar to what we should be thinking about in a really terrible shape in terms of strategic security.
1: Well, that's the thing. There have been a lot of questions about how Israel could fail in security in such a massive way. It's just like the, the, the magnitude of this failure, it's almost inconceivable given everything that people think about when they think about Israeli security, they think about, you know, the Mossad and the intelligence agencies being the best in the world. And they think about the Israeli military being one of the best in the world. Correct. And the more stuff starts coming out, you start to realize, like, Netanyahu being so beholden to these extreme right-wingers in his coalition that are allowing him to stay in power, you know, he has to kiss their ass, basically. He has to please them. And one of their biggest interests is protecting the settlers in the West Bank. Yeah. The settlers who, like, speaking of pogroms, are out there conducting pogroms against yeah. Palest- their Palestinian yeah. neighbors, literally. That's yeah. not even an exaggeration. These are terrorists. These are yeah. terrorists. Yeah. and. The, the super far right wing is all about that because they want to annex the West Bank. They want to basically drive the Palestinians out and make it Jewish. And, and a few years ago, they had to
0: remove all those people mm-hmm. from the West Bank. There was like a mass removal of those Jews because actually Obama was very good with Netanyahu and was like, yeah, you do your fucking job or we're not going to support you and you're not going to get American money. Mm -hmm. Like there was no nice negotiation. He's like, yeah, fuck you, which was great. It was very effective. Yeah, it was really good.
1: It was was effective. Like they at least started to remove uh, settlers, but it's been the opposite over the past several months, maybe year or two. I don't even know how long it's been going on, but a good portion of the army that was guarding the border with Gaza was moved. Like half yeah. the army there was moved to the West Bank to protect those fucking settlers, and that's part of that picture. Is like, why would you do that? Because you have to to save your political hide. It's the only way. And and one more
0: thing about that and about how frustrating this Netanyahu has been in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so those settlers and those highly religious extremists, they don't often they don't go to the service right? because they're excused from the service because they're too busy, like, studying their religious stuff.
1: Well, in case listeners don't know, I assume most people know this, but um, everyone in Israel, all Israeli citizens, are required to serve in the military for two years, right? Yeah. So, like, you turn 18, you do two years of service. Yeah. But the ultra-religious are exempt from this because they're very busy studying Talmud. That's right. And you can't do both. And if you don't do the
0: service, then you don't really work and make money and pay taxes either because you're too busy being exempt because you're studying Talmud. Right. So these people, stage pogroms, build settlements where they're not supposed to build them, have other people's children defending them in the Israeli service, And grift off the government and don't pay taxes. Like, let's be clear, the religious extremists have gotten their hands increasingly on the Israeli government. And again, if this is not familiar to you as an American, you are not not paying paying attention. attention. This is what we're looking at right now, increasingly. And I feel like if anything good comes out of this, it's... Likud, the right-wing party, like, losing power for a long, long time. Yeah.
1: I mean, that does seem to be (sighs) one likely outcome, that when all is said and done, this will not help Netanyahu because in the short term, a lot of Israelis are doing the whole, like, I guess we're at war, let's rally together, let's talk about politics another time. But when it is over... There's a lot of anger at him and it sounds like a lot of blame of him for dropping the ball, which also seems to reflect like the quality of people that Netanyahu has surrounded himself with. The people he's appointed to key and important positions have been incompetent boobs, which again, sound familiar? Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. So back to the original thing, this is a complicated ancient feud, which will probably never be resolved. Right. No. We are living in a particular geopolitical moment where we are seeing the rise of extremists everywhere everywhere pulling the same fucking grift.
1: And it's it's this partnership between extre- like religious extremists, people like real ideologues and folks with will to power. Like Trump is not an ideological person. He is not a religious extremist by any means. Um, But those who are find an ally in him as they do in Netanyahu because those who have either a financial interest or a personal power interest, whatever, um, that could be aligned with the religious extremists, they, they are willing to go there and then everything turns to shit. So I think we did it. <laughs> I think we did it. And I feel like
0: if there were to be a big critique, it's that we avoided the harder questions of should Israel exist by shifting this onto looking at the geopolitical causes as opposed to like looking at the real day-to-day lived experience. So, I mean, maybe we're completely <laughs> just like avoiding...
1: I don't agree with that because, first of all, should Israel exist is not a question. Israel exists. And I hope that people listening understand that Israel isn't like a collection of encampments or something. (laughs) Like, Israel is not a colony. It's a country that has existed for generations now. And most of the people living there were not born when Israel came into existence. They didn't come from another country and colonize it any more than we Americans came from another country and colonized this land that did not belong to our ancestors.
0: Yeah, I don't think anybody in LA is going to be leaving Chumash land anytime soon. Right, exactly.
1: And also there's a moral argument about Jews needing a homeland Which I think, I don't know, maybe we're not allowed to talk about that anymore.
0: I mean, it's really, that's where it gets really um, hard because Israel itself was a formation of geopolitical maneuvering by imperialist colonists.
1: 100%.
0: And so... You can blame the Jews for it, <laughs> right? But there were a lot of forces. Right, the at Jews play. didn't do it
1: by themselves. Oh, they sure did not. <laughs> they they did could not, not have. do it alone. No, not, but, but but those who want to blame the Jews believe that they manipulate everything somehow.
0: Oh yeah, sure. They manipulated um, the Nazis into killing. It
1: was great. Right, it was right. really fun for us. It was all a false flag, so they could get Israel. Yeah. But, so they um, could. But another reason why the question of Israel's existence isn't relevant is because 53% of Gazans are fine with recognizing Israel. Like, what, what I'm suggesting is that, in fact, most of the people in the region would probably be fine with recognizing Israel if they had reason to think that Israel would cease to be an apartheid state. Yeah. And, you know, like what has been going on since 1967 is unconscionable. Yeah. Israel had yes. some sympathy from the world because Israel was surrounded by enemies that wanted to destroy Israel. It was this tiny, they were this tiny little country and they're surrounded by Lebanon and Syria and Jordan and Egypt. And Israel had the right to defend themselves and their existence. And they took those lands ostensibly as a strong, Um, preemptive measure to stave off an invasion. It was an existential move for Israel. They did it to protect their very existence. And so, okay, you get a few years... Of global acceptance of that, or at least Western, you get a, a few years of, of Western leeway on like, well, what are you going to do? You right. have to. And you get a few years of, well, we can't just give up the West Bank because then we'd be so vulnerable. Right. But then Jordan, Jordan is not a threat anymore.
0: I mean, Egypt and that's is not a threat. And, that, and that's the thing is that also like sound familiar, like the increased security state is so profound and it's just been escalating and escalating and escalating. And you add this increasing right-wing government, this increasing power of Messianic fundamentalist religious people who really had nothing to do with the (laughs) founding of the state of Israel, like on every fucking level. And 30% of the really extremist religious Jews are coming from America. So yeah, I know. it's I know. so which is also this is like, just,
1: oh, it's the fucking worst. It's it is the worst. It, it's awful. And politically, politically, they benefit politically from people being afraid. So if you were to just say, hey, let's let's two state solution this shit. Let's give the West Bank and Gaza to the Palestinians. We're good.
0: And we'd be um, good. Yeah. Let's go back to. Yeah. Let's go back to 48 borders.
1: So they don't want to because they believe in expansionism and all of that shit, but they, they need to keep the Palestinians as refugees because they need the Palestinians to produce terrorists so that they can justify their own existence as the people who are going to protect you from the terrorists. That is a cycle that we see over and over again. We see it in Israel. It's not unique to Israel. We've seen it in the United States plenty. We you know that there's a symbiotic relationship- yeah. Yeah. between the terrorists and those who fight the terrorists the the threat and those who are here to protect you from the threat
0: all right listeners were we wrong did we prove you wrong do you hate us now or are you not listening to us again have you not noticed we're Jewish <laughs>
1: Are we, are we biased? Did you detect our oh, bias? Oh, God, come
0: on. How fucking biased are we? Because we're feminists. Yeah. That's our bias. I mean, we
1: do, yeah, we have a point of view. Uh, yeah. That's different from a bias. Uh, we can still be open-minded and objective. That's right. That's what I say. That's right.
0: Um, listeners, we love you. We would like to keep doing this show. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> please, if you, if you hated this episode, please look past it.
0: Uh, and if you think, oh, they're just these Jews with horns, then you're not really listening to us anyway. I don't even know why you Yeah, you're
1: you haven't got this far. They haven't got this far.
0: No. Unless um, they
1: were listening for our, um, our horns.
0: And we hope that, that your people, uh, wherever they are right now, are safe. Well, listeners, uh, join us
1: on the Sauce Speakeasy, which has been a little quiet lately. Yeah, we got to get the lively conversation going again. That's right. Perhaps the missing piece listener has been you.
0: That's right. Patreon.com slash sauce podcast. And we are still always looking for ideas. We are so happy to ruin anything in our culture politically Anything you've been wondering about? Anything that's been just pissing you off? Please let us know. You can email us at saucepodcasts at gmail.com. You can find us on any of the socials.
1: You can reach me as at Gynostar on all the various platforms.
0: You can find me at my grants anywhere. If you're looking for my grants and come find me because I have this show
1: opening. Where is the show?
0: The show is at a gallery called L.A. Art Corps in Little Tokyo in Los Angeles. It's called Poem for E.L. It's a show in video and dance. It's a, it's a video art installation.
1: And, and uh, when does it
0: start? It opens on Saturday, October 21st. It runs until November 19th. And actually, it's a really interesting story. I'm surprised we haven't talked about it. Because it's really about what happens when a woman's story is true crime. Oh. So I feel like we could probably find five to seven things to say about that.
1: Yeah, maybe we could do an episode about it. Mm-hmm. You see it like this is synergy, podcast episode, show promotion. All of it comes together. It's our show. We can do what the fuck we want. So, All right.
0: All right, listeners. We definitely
1: look forward to hearing from you. And uh, we'll be back again, hopefully with something light. Can we do something light next time? I mean, I don't think there's
0: anything dark about a woman found dead in a fucking water tank on the top of the right. Los Angeles right. blockhouse.
1: I mean, it's, let's be real, it's a little lighter than what we did this week. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. The world is such okay. a fucking mess well, right whatever now. whatever it oh is, we'll have something to ruin for you soon. In the meantime, adios, amoebas. are making a lot noise taquito shut it taquito shut it he he sits in the corner looking looking at the corner and crying i think he sees a ghost i think he's old I think no taquito's not old he he's only like eight or ten years old how old are you taquito all right i distracted him long enough to he forgot about the ghost